I forgot how high stage was. Jimmy's obviously got a, he's shorter than me, so I get it. It's, it's all right. If this is what he needs, that's fine. I'd rather be a little closer to y'all, but that's, that's the way it is. For those of you who weren't here earlier, the on-time challenged, um, it's okay. We love you still. You're welcome here. Um, I'm here because, well, a couple of reasons. One, Jimmy has COVID, for those of you that didn't hear that. And two, you are right now taking part in a service that's a dual service between True Life Church and Axe Church Northwest. And so, yeah, this is an exciting thing. The Axe Church folks are online with us. They're meeting in houses because the church was flooded. And so I'm here today. Many of you do know me. Actually, my, I used to practice law here in town. That's why I had to become a pastor, make up for that. <laughs> and so my former law partner, the Honorable Will Roach, uh, is here, as well as my other former law partner, Matt Miller, came uh, today. So that's good. That doesn't make me nervous at all. So <laughs> what am I going to say to sort of tie it together? Washington and Tennessee, two very different places Football, I guess, both in the top 10, the Huskies and the Vols this year. So congratulations to you all ending up in the top 10 uh, in football. And to us also, congratulations to us because we're a couple below you guys, but it was a good season. Um, I want you guys to think about this this morning. I want you to ask yourself this question. What are we supposed to do as the church when it comes to the culture? I just want you to be kind of marinating on that as we sort of walk through what we're going to walk through this morning. But let's pray as we get started. Father, I ask that you would be with us this morning. I ask that as we look into your word, that your word would change and transform us. We know that your word goes out and does not return void. We know that your Holy Spirit teaches us. And I pray that we would just be humble before you this morning, that we might learn from you. We're in an interesting and difficult time. And as the church, we just want to follow you. We love you, Jesus. We sang to you this morning because we love you. We are in love with you, Jesus. Please guide us and lead us and show us and take away the things that have grown up in us or around us because of the culture and the world that we're in that aren't about you and help us to just be looking to you and nothing else. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. So the culture, how are we supposed to interact with the people around us? Culture is really kind of a description of how people live, how they live, right? Uh, in Washington, for instance, we call the thing that you put your clothes in with the drawers, we call that a dresser. In Tennessee, I've heard many people call it a Chester drawers. <laughs> Those who are watching from Washington right now think I said chest of drawers. I didn't say chest of drawers. I said Chester drawers. No idea, right? It's a little cultural difference, right? I don't, I don't know. In Washington, the thing when you're in the grocery store and you're putting your items in that thing, we call that a shopping cart. You all call it a? Buggy. A buggy, right? <laughs> and why wouldn't you, right? After all. <laughs> now, the one I'll give you is we use, us and everyone but you all, uses the word lawyer, and you guys say lawyer, and I've always thought that was strange, but everybody always says the same thing to me. You don't practice loy. Fair enough, Tennessee, you went on that one. You went on that one. Culture is, is, is about a lot of things. One aspect is that, how we communicate, the things that we say. Uh, there are more significant aspects of culture than just that, though. Culture is partially about sort of what kinds of behaviors we accept. What do we accept sort of as a society, as a culture? What do we consider normal? What do we consider acceptable? 
That's, that's probably a more accurate way to think about what culture is. How do we talk? What do we eat? What do we wear? How do we interact? Right? What, what kinds of things do we think are okay? And what kinds of things do we not think are okay? How do you define a family? How do you define a man or a woman? Some people have had a hard time with that one. What is acceptable in how you treat other people and how you treat yourself? What are we going to, as a society, as a culture, say is successful or, or, or acceptable in that case? And this goes to things like morality, goes to things like justice. We're all, each one of us, sort of existing in several cultures at once. You have sort of the culture of the whole world, right? The whole world at this moment sort of has a general culture, but there's a lot of differences in that. And then you get maybe to the United States, and you have a culture in the United States, and then you sort of have cultures regionally. I pointed out a difference just a little while ago between, say, the, the South and the Northwest. There's some cultural differences, some pretty significant ones if you go there. But most of those are sort of in how we talk and, and things like that. There's actually with the Internet and, and, and the advent of TikTok and all that kind of stuff, the culture, it's getting flat to where almost everybody's starting to think and believe the same kinds of things, generally not good things, Right. But you also have other cultures. You have other cultures. Um, you know, you have, you have your very local culture. For instance, in, in, in Washington State, you can go to a store and just buy pot to just smoke for fun. You just walk into the store. Can I have some pot, sir? They say, yes, everyone's cool with this. It's no problem. Here in Tennessee, you go to jail for that, right? I know that because I used to represent some of you. Preston, are you here this morning? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, obviously, I'm kidding. Preston could not afford me, but. This is fun so far, right? But you have a culture all the way down to your family, right? Your family has a culture. Each family has a culture also. The things you do, the things you think are okay. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, My kids and, and the Arwoods kids kind of got raised together for a number of years when they were young. We would spend a lot of time with them. We go out to eat. They like to go out to eat a lot. As you can see, I'm not really big on that, but they, <laughs> they really like to go out to eat. And so we would go out to eat quite a bit. And there was a very different culture with us. For, for my wife, Tiffany, and I, um, our kids get to eat what we tell them to eat. If they order off a menu, you say the name of the thing on the menu, and that's what you say. You don't, you don't make a lot of, you don't make it difficult on the people at the restaurant. Okay, that's how we are. That is not the Arwood family culture. <laughs> For any of you that have been out with the Arwood family, those kids got whatever they wanted. I mean, they're just feeling, they're just, uh, there's whatever. Pizza, no sauce, put the sauce on the side, bring it to me while singing a song. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> serve it to me on a bed of pickles. And, and they're just like, that's what they want, David. And I'm just, the, the waiter, right, is having to deal with every kid. They had three kids. Every kid, I'm not even talking about Rusty and Lauren, what their order. Every kid, I'm, I can't make eye contact with the waiter. I'm just like, we brought this family out. This is their first time, this first time out. If our kids wanted to order like that, they would be hungry. It's not happening. It's not happening. But that's how the Arwoods roll. That's their family culture. And that's, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Robinson's roll differently, and we don't make waiters cry. That's just a thing for us. But that's part of our culture, right? Your family kind of has a way that it does its thing. The question that we need to think about, 
Because the scripture's really clear, and we spend a lot of time on like the family, marriage, kids, that kind of thing, but we don't spend as much time on how to deal with the larger culture when it comes to the church. What is our job as a church in the culture? I'm talking about the secular culture, the secular culture, the culture of the world. And you got to understand that we, the, in the scripture, we use the word the world a lot. You know, the world, that, that type of thing. And there is an aspect where the world and culture are sort of the same. And then there's an aspect where they're sort of different. The world obviously is of the devil. He's the one who's running the show for the world as we think about that biblically. Which means that that's infecting culture, the way people act, in a pretty big way. In a really big way. So that's secular culture, the culture that you work in most likely, the culture that you vote in, the culture that you watch on the news, the culture that sort of infects everything you, all the television shows that you watch and things like that. You're constantly being pushed into a, into a particular worldview or a particular set of ideas about what to accept, what's acceptable, how to act, how to live, how to dress, how to whatever from the culture, right? So how do we interact with that? How do we interact with that? And there have been many people in Christianity who have actually given many different answers to that question. And so I want to walk through that with you. I want to walk through what are the answers that people have given to that and which one is right. Obviously, whichever one I tell you is the right one. <laughs> no. there, are, there are different ways of looking at this. And so it's obviously difficult. It's a difficult issue because I, I believe the scripture is pretty clear and yet we have all of these different ways that people have chosen and called them biblical to address and interact with the culture. The Bible, it's not unclear. Jesus is not unclear. You know what makes things unclear? Is that it's difficult. What he calls us to do is difficult. And so I think some of the ways that have come up with how to deal with the culture have been molded because of how difficult it is to do what Christ called us to do and to do what the apostles did and to do the thing. Because I don't know if you remember this from the book, if you guys have read it, uh, the apostles, they went through a lot. Jesus went through a lot. They killed him, right? They killed a lot of the apostles. It was difficult what they went through. In order to live the way that they had been called to live, they had to experience a lot of persecution. So what I think we've done in these other things we're gonna talk about is we found ways to sort of avoid the persecution that comes with actually doing it the biblical way. Have you ever thought about the fact that when you get saved, you don't just immediately go to heaven? And, and you gotta ask yourself, why? I wanna be with Jesus, he wants to be with me, he loves me, I love him, I just got saved, what am I doing in this nasty place, right? Not Tennessee, not Tennessee, it's not nasty here, I'm just, the world, right? What am I doing here? Why doesn't he just bring us to him, right? Well, I've, been, I've been saved, I'm baptized, let's get on with it, let's get on with it. That's not what happens. And there's a reason why, because it would actually be the most obvious thing to do. You're saved, let's get you home. Let's get you home. But that's not what happens. What happens is we stay. We stay here and we work. Paul had a hard time with it. I don't know if you remember this out of Philippians, but Paul actually struggled with, should I stay or should I go, right? Should I die or should I stay? This is what he says. This is Philippians 1, 21 through 24. It says, For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Better, right? But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, 
having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. We know it's much better to be in heaven, to be with Jesus. We love him, but why are we still here? Well, you're here for each other, and you're here for the world. That's what you're here for. You're here for, listen to this, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You should be familiar with that one. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what you're here for. That's what you're here for. You're here to walk in the good works that have been prepared beforehand for you. We get very worked up about a lot of things, okay? Marriage, kids, right? Especially here in Tennessee. Some of you all have more kids than most churches have kids. Like in, we don't have a lot of kids in Washington. There's not, not as many people want to have kids um, because they're messed up. Kids are awesome. That's great. You guys have a lot of them. I don't know if you don't have televisions or how that works, but I know, I know things close early because I got in late last night and I said to Rusty, it's probably why you have so many kids. There's nothing to do here at night. So, but we get focused on it, right? If you talk to a young person, it's about getting married, it's about a career, it's about having kids, it's about the next vacation, it's about the next iPhone, it's about the next car I want to buy or the house I want to buy. All of those things, by the way, can be good things, but they are secondary things. They're secondary things to the primary thing that you have been called to do. Our primary calling is given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's given to us directly. We actually have it out on the wall at Acts Church in big writing, so we don't forget our primary calling. This is what it says, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. We're to be making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey all that he's commanded. And he's with us in that. And that is our job. All those other things I just talked about, marriage and kids and iPhones and cars and what great, fine. But those are secondary. The, the, the way we're going, the way we're called to be is about this great commission. It's our first call to action. We're first, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. How do you do that? How do you work that out? The great commission. That's how you work that out. We're to put that into action through evangelism. In many ways, through many giftings, we are evangelizing the world, showing them Jesus, showing them the way to Jesus, to win people to Jesus Christ. We're to make disciples. Now, that might be at work. That might be at home, in your marriage, in your softball league. Whatever you do, wherever God has put you, your first priority it's winning people to Christ, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. That's it. And you're commissioned and empowered by the Holy Spirit to infiltrate the culture and the world with the gospel. If you're wondering, what's it about? What am I supposed to do? I'm a Christian now, and maybe things are going rough. I'm not really sure who I am and what I'm supposed to do. There's a lot of that these days. Like, what's my identity? What am I supposed to do? Let me make it easy for you. You are a Christ follower, disciple-making, baptizing, teaching believer. That's what you are. 
That's what you're called to do. Everything else is part of life, but it's secondary to that. Everything else for my video game playing, brothers and sisters, is a side quest. Okay? It's a side quest. And by the way, stop playing so many video games. Okay? <laughs> Grow up. Grow up. Some of you are like, video game. Yeah. It's true. You're not going to get a girl, young man, with all the video games. <laughs> you got, seriously, you've got to stop. Okay. Anyway, I'll get off. I'll get off. Some of you are literally like playing a video game on your phone right now. Oh. Yes, I see you. Let's look at a few ways people have answered this question. Answer the question of how Christ followers should engage or not engage the culture. The first category, and I got these, these categories from Pastor Jimmy. I don't know where he got them from. He reads books and stuff. That's probably where this came from. Um, so I don't know. But the first one is called Christianity Against Culture. Christianity Against Culture. And there's a couple ways this works. The first one is sort of the Christianity as a bomb shelter. I get saved, and now my job is to kind of get my family saved and sort of isolate ourselves from the world. It's an isolationist movement. We're not going to be in the world. We're really not going to, we're not going to have any more friends that are in the world. We're in our own thing. We go to church. We only watch movies with like Kirk Cameron in him, right? Like, <laughs> don't do that. Those are terrible movies, right? Some of them, some of them, some of them are good. Some of them make me cry. But here's the thing. You're, you're isolating yourself. I'm, I'm here, I'm in this bubble, the world is bad, I want to stay away from it, it's just me and Jesus. It's kind of like the old school monks who would just kind of be hermits. They go out and be by themselves, right? And, and they're away from the world, separate from the world, literally kind of out of the world. That's one way, okay? Another Christianity against culture is sort of the culture warrior or Christian nationalist. Now, before you get, you've probably heard these terms. Let me define them for you, okay? I want you, I want you to be clear about what these are. A culture warrior is not someone who wants to see a more godly society. That's just called being a Christian, okay? That's not a culture warrior. A culture warrior is someone who believes that we need to fight people as opposed to principalities and powers and whatever that are infecting the world and the culture, that we need to fight and be angry and be on the other side, clearly, of people Right? They want to use politics and man-made law to essentially force the culture to accept Christianity. Or, you see culture warriors actually on both sides, or to accept just basically conservative political ideas or, or progressive political ideas. That's what culture warriors do. What they want to do is control. They want to get control and win the culture war kind of legally. Okay? That's what a culture warrior does. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We've actually tried it. We used to have it. If you might remember in the, in the Middle Ages and, and on, actually in some countries still, there is actually a state church and they're in control and they get to tell everybody what to do. It's really these days much more of like a Muslim thing than a Christian thing to, to try to have that kind of control over laws and religious laws to force everybody into them. But that kind of goes into the other one, which is Christian nationalism. Some people think Christian nationalism means I'm a Christian and I'm patriotic. Well, you should be those things. That's not what a Christian nationalist is. Don't get confused by that. A Christian nationalist, the movement comes out of a movement called dominionism, which is really popular kind of in the 70s and then kind of went away because it's a bad idea. And that idea is actually, it, it, it comes out of, let me back up. Dominionism comes out of an eschatology or, or a theology of the end times that says that Christ is going to return 
when we Christianize the world. Okay, as opposed to the church is going to be raptured and then Christ is going to come back. Tribulation, Christ comes back, millennial kingdom. He actually comes back and judges and then creates his kingdom for us that we usher in the kingdom by making the entire world Christian. Okay, and so the idea for a dominionist is that you're supposed to take over all governments, all institutions, not just to be more Christian, but to actually enforce. And depending on your flavor of Christian nationalism, some of them want to bring back the Old Testament Mosaic Law, and the punishments, okay? So kids, don't be disobedient. We got rocks outside, <laughs> right? That's literally, there are Christian nationals who that's what they want to do. They want to take over and Christianize all nations, all institutions, okay? That is not a scriptural call. And one of the ways you can know it is you don't see any apostle, you don't see Christ, and you don't see any apostle, you don't see anyone in the early church even, even looking like they're on that path, that that's what they're trying to do. That is not our call. Our call is not through force of arms and through force, of, uh, through force to essentially make everybody a Christian. Again, that's the Muslim way of doing things, right? It's convert or kill. That's the idea. This, that has never been the Christian way of doing things. And it's not the Christian way of doing things now. That's, that's the church, Christianity, against culture. Those are other people. They're bad people. And we are the ones to bring judgment on them. But Scripture's clear about who brings judgment. Who brings judgment? God. Jesus. He brings judgment. He's the judge. We're not here to judge the world. We're not here to judge the world. So that's sort of the Christianity against culture. The next one is Christianity with culture. We see a lot of the first group. We see a lot of the second group, Christianity with culture. The people in this group are generally looking to have the church mirror the culture. Okay, so you saw this with kind of the seeker-sensitive movement and some of its excesses back in the day. That's where you try to make the worship service and church as much like the world as possible. Uh, sometimes you would try to get rid of words like church, or sanctuary, or bulletin, you know, I, we, I don't, we don't have bulletins anymore, I don't think, but, but that's more about just, why would you have a bulletin, than it is about changing the name, but they try to change all the words, they try to do everything, that's like, like people don't know when they walk into a building that looks like this, that it's a church, right, they know that, but we were trying to, we, not me, but some people were trying to sort of take all of that away, and sort of mirror the culture as much as possible, and so we've seen this in a number of things like progressive Christianity, where what happens is they become more and more like the world, right? We see antinomianism against law. People who are like, there's no law. We're all under grace. Do what you want. Do whatever you want. Be like the world. It doesn't matter. Christ doesn't care about that. You see all those kinds of movements that have come under the idea of Christianity is like the culture, is in the culture in that kind of a way. Christianity with culture. Many of them end up interpreting the Bible in such a way that it no longer means what it says in order to justify the things that they do. So you see, you will see churches that literally right out front will let you know with certain flags and certain signs and certain things that they are supportive of things that we know the scripture says are not good for people and are sinful. You'll see it more where I'm from than here, but you see it here too. You see it here too. 
what happens is, is that as you progress, I don't know what you're progressing towards other than not Christianity, but as you progress, you start to believe the Bible less and less, value the Bible less and less until the Bible really doesn't mean anything anymore. That's Christianity with culture. You just keep becoming more and more like culture. If you guys have ever been to the hardware store and they have uh, like the paint things with the colors on them, they got a big thing of, if you remember like Home Depot or something, they got a big thing. They got all these colors. I know colors like white and blue and whatever, but you go and look at white there and there's 800 whites, right? 800 different eggshell surprise. You know, it's like there are all these different colors of white. Now let's assume that we look at culture and the church that way. Let's say the church is purple and the culture is white. If what happens is you start trying to mirror the culture, you put a little bit of white paint in that color, what happens is, is that you start going from the color purple to the color less purple, right? Light purple and then Concord grape, then Vineyard Passage. These are real things. I looked these up. Vineyard Passage. <laughs> then Sensual Senses, which even kind of makes sense with the whole thing, which is like almost white. And what happens is you start moving from the purple scale into the white scale. And then what happens is you continue to do it is someone from the outside is going to go, there's no difference between that and that. You may call it church white and they call it culture white, but they both look the same to me. Don't give me eggshell. That's white, right? There's no purple left. That's what happens with Christianity with culture is culture just takes over Christianity. So there's one that says Christianity should take over. There's one that says culture should take over. Then there's another one. There's another one. And I understand, by the way, that many people are moved towards both of these. Both of these. And the thing is, they're both ways, if you think about this, they're both ways to avoid persecution. In one way, you're avoiding persecution by either avoiding culture altogether or by fighting it, getting your team together. They're not going to persecute me. I'm going to persecute them. Right? That's sort of the Christian nationalist culture warrior. We're going to get a big enough team and enough people on it to where we're tough enough to not get hurt. Or this one where you go, they won't hurt us if we just keep acting like them until the name of Jesus means nothing anymore. And so they go that direction. But that's not our call. That's not our call. We're not going to do either one of those things. We're not going to use the Bible to force people into behavior because it's about the changing of hearts that happens with the Holy Spirit. Nor are we going to say that the Bible isn't our truth anymore, like the progressive side. There is only one truth. There is only one truth, God's truth. So here's the third group, Christianity in and for culture. Let's talk about what that means. Let's look at the scripture. If you have your Bible, you can look it up. We're going to be in John. It's in the New Testament, Rusty, if you're wondering. You've got to help him out sometimes. We're going to start in verse 14. I'm going to put my glasses on. Give me a second. Oh, yeah, you should know the chapter too. No, you figure it out. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> chapter 17, verse 14. <laughs> you guys want chapters? I mean, come on. It says, I have given, this, Jesus is praying for us, for the church, okay? I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. 
Set them apart. Sanctify them by your truth. He goes on. I'm losing it here. Losing my place. There it is. Uh, Another world. There it is. Your word is truth. I just said that. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So as Jesus was sent into the world, we've been sent into the world. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who that is? You. He's talking about the apostles here, and he's saying, not just, not just them, but those who will believe in me because of them, and that's us. That's you and me. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So at the end of this, what happens if we're in the world and we're unified? Then the world will know that the Father sent the Son. And that the Father loves us and them as he loves Jesus. That's what happens when we do it the right way. We are not of the world, but we are in the world. We have been sent to be in the world. That's why he didn't just take us to heaven right away. Because we were sent to be in the world. We're in the world's culture. But we're not of the world's culture. But when we're one, when we're unified, doing this the right way, it is such a powerful witness that people start to believe in Christ because of it. That's what the scripture says. He talks about people knowing us by our love, right? And that's a testimony about who he is. That's who we are to be. And that's what Jesus prays for us. It's powerful, guys. It's powerful stuff. I love Jesus. If he has something for me to do, I want to do it. And he sent us into the world and the culture to show the world and the culture who God is. That's our job. What an honor, right? A real mission. So many people are walking around. What's the meaning of life? What's my mission? What's my purpose? This is it. This is it. And it's a good one. And you have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. We are to season the world with the love of God. It's the model that we saw with Jesus. It's the model that we saw with the apostles. And it's the model that we're to follow. The culture was changed. It was changed because Christians lived lives of love for each other and love for the orphan and love for the widow and love for the oppressed and love for the unbeliever who was their enemy according to what the unbeliever believed. And yet they showed love and it changed the world. We march against the gates of hell to set the prisoners free by being united in the love of God in the midst of the world and the culture. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this in 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He's talking about a couple of things. One is those that are an unrepentant, rebellious sin against God and calling themselves a brother or a sister. We've got to stay away from them because we do have an, uh, an, uh, the, the call to judge those in the church. But he's saying something else too. Those who are outside the church, if you tried to avoid them, you would have to die. You would have to go out of the world to avoid them. So you're in it with them. And you are not in a place to condemn or judge them. Those are the people who are winning to Christ. Those are the people that were winning to Christ. We are in it with them. We can't not be in it with them until we die. We're in the world in that sense. We've been sent in the world to preach the gospel to these people. There is only one culture war that I see in this passage. That's the culture of the church. That's where there really is a war where you actually have some ability to judge in that way. Those who are an unrepentant, rebellious, sinful lifestyle are to be dealt with, that they might be drawn back. But they're to be dealt with seriously. 1 Peter 4, 17, first part of the verse. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Who is Jesus battling with? What do we see? Does he go? Does he even care about what Caesar is doing, about what the leaders are doing? Who is he always battling with? The, hip, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? That's who he's always battling with, the oppressors, those who made the house of God, the house of prayer, the temple into a den of thieves. That's who he's battling with. You don't ever see him saying, all right, get everybody together. I mean, he's sitting there, he's giving bread to 5,000 men plus women and children. That's a big crowd. He could have been like, let's do it, guys. Everybody get up, grab your sword. We're gonna go take over, which is what they wanted them to do, by the way. He didn't do that. He taught them how to love each other. He came to give his life for the world. Those people that we're either feeling against or afraid of or whatever, he gave his life for them and rose again, defeating sin and death and hell that they might be able to know him. He gave his life for the sins of the world. His model was loving, serving, suffering. For who? For the sinful, for the broken, for the lost. Judgment was for the hypocrites, the religious people, right? That, that pervaded the leadership within Israel at that time. But love and mercy and willingness to be persecuted was for the world, that they might come to know him. He came to serve them. Let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, gave you a chapter this time. We're going to start right at the beginning, verse 1. New Testament again, Rusty. You good? All right. There it is. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our first thing, how are we to be poor in spirit? Recognizing our absolute 100% need for God our 100% need for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Have to, have to have it. We're poor in spirit. We don't have it ourselves. 
We need the Holy Spirit. We need forgiveness of sin, the poor in spirit. Those people are blessed. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is it going to be rough? It's going to be rough. And you're blessed in your mourning because he will comfort you. We're going to mourn, but we're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. Those who have the strength and power of the Holy Spirit in their life, very powerful, but humble, gentle, and under control. Meek isn't about weak, or they would have used the word weak. Meekness is about you absolutely have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, yet it's under control and it's gentle. That's what Jesus showed us. That's what Jesus showed us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Look, we got to be that. We're not going to mean anything to the culture. We're not going to be any different from the culture if we don't hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. If we don't want to eat up his law like honey, we got to want it. Why? Because we love him. If any of you are, are married in a relationship or you have good friends or whatever, you want to please those people because you love them. We want righteousness because it's how God has made us to live and it pleases him. And we're blessed in it. We're blessed in hungering and thirsting for him. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Are they enemies to hate or are they people upon whom to show mercy as God has shown us mercy? You got to think about this as you're addressing the culture. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We got to get there. Our, our heart is where the stuff comes from. It's where the sin comes from. We got to have purity of heart. When you have purity of heart and you're living the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, it's very difficult to become a pugnacious, difficult culture warrior. It's also very difficult to run away from the people who you're supposed to love. It's also difficult to let that purple flow into white, knowing that in doing so, you do not have a witness to help people who are harming themselves. If you're doing those things and you're pure in heart, you shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That doesn't sound like people who are trying to constantly show that we're in a battle against other people. It sounds like people who are trying to help other people find peace with God. If you want to do that and be effective in it, you have to have a relationship. You want to help people find peace with God? They got to be willing to listen to you. They can't believe that you hate them. They can't believe that you think they're disgusting, you stay away from them. They can't believe that you're just like them. So all those other ways of addressing the culture don't work for that. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's gonna happen? You do this the right way, God's way, you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake because this is righteous living and it will bring persecution. It doesn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted and get a big team of people together and go to the Supreme Court and get rid of that persecution. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to do that. I'm just saying that's not what this is about. That's not what this is about. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is what will happen. If you live biblically in the culture, you will experience persecution. This is why the temptation is to go to those other ways of dealing with the culture, because you don't want to experience it. Canceling, that's been a big thing, right? 
You say the wrong thing on Twitter or whatever. I'm sure you're all on Twitter. I'm, Twitter's stupid. But you're on whatever. You say the wrong thing, and what happens? You lose your job. People, you know, hate you. They, you know, protest outside your house, whatever, whatever it is. We have Christians who have experienced real persecution, lost jobs, right? Lost business, lost friendships for standing up for what is right. Persecution is real if you live righteously. And you're blessed in it. Why? Because it makes you like the prophets. More importantly, it makes you like Jesus. Because he showed us how to do it. Now here, we got to get, it's 10.05. I think I'm supposed to, what time am I supposed to be done here? 10.15. <laughs> well, we'll see how that goes. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are, you are, I am, we are the salt of the earth. That's who we are as the church. What is, what is, what is the deal with salt? It does a couple of things. It preserves, right? It seasons, makes things taste good, and it preserves. When you put salt in something, it doesn't become that thing. It stays salt. It's in it. It's not of it. But it's creating the opportunity for that thing to become preserved and flavorful. What is your job within the culture? You're preserving it. You know that the Holy Spirit is the restrainer. That if the Holy Spirit, who you have in you, if you're a Christ follower, was to go out of the world, it would get really, really bad, really, really fast. And that is what's going to happen. The church is going to be called up. Those who have been walking around in the power of the Holy Spirit since the day of Pentecost are going to be called up. The Holy Spirit, the restrainer, will be taken out of the way, is the way Scripture puts it. And that's when the Antichrist comes. That's when all the bad stuff comes. Read to the end of the book. It's wild. Crazy. Things go really, really bad. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's no longer restraining. How is the world being restrained? By you being salt and preserving it. We're in culture to preserve it from going all the way down. The only thing holding back the evil that you see just bursting at the seams trying to come into the world right now is you and me. We have to handle it the right way. We have to handle it like Jesus did. That's always been the way that Christianity has pervaded culture, seasoned it, preserved it through the power of the Holy Spirit living in this way. This is what we do. We are not part of the world, but we're in it. We are not friends with the world. What does it say? James 4, 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We're not friends with the world. We're not friends of the world. We're not of the world. We are separate. We are literally the church. We are the called out, right? That's who we are. That's what the church is. What does it say next? We're going to do this, and I'm going to try to finish this up because I know we got to, you guys don't like to be in church very long. I understand that. I understand that. I'm kidding. I know I've been many Jimmy sermons that go well past the time. So <laughs> you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
We are literally being used of God to show the world the way to him. But the light has to be in the world to be useful. If the light's out of the world, they can't see it. We're in the world, separate from the world, we're a light. We are the ones who are showing them. Ask yourself the question when you're thinking about the culture, when, you're, when the cable news comes on, which just stop watching that garbage. But when it does come on, you want to watch it and the people are the talking heads are, you know how they do it, right? It's not news, by the way. That's just entertainment. That's just a way to get you to keep watching advertisements, just so you know. But when you see that and you get worked up, you get worked up and you go, these people, I can't believe they're trying to blah, 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 blah. Ask yourself, is that light to the world? What do people think when they see you angry, scared, anxious about what's happening? That's not light, folks. They're going, I'm scared and anxious and afraid. What good is Jesus if that's how his people are too? Confident, meek, willing to be persecuted, believing in the faithfulness of God, trusting him absolutely not compromising one iota of the truth of Scripture, whether that's about morality, whether that's about the way we live, whether that's about the way we have our families, whether that's about the way we do church. We don't compromise not one bit. Purple is purple. White's white over there. We're going to stay where we are. But in doing that, in the culture, we're going to continuously be salt and light. We're in culture and we're for culture. How are we for culture? We're for getting them saved. We're for the Great Commission. We're for seeing what happened to me and what happened to you. I was the chief of sinners brought out of sin by the love of Christ followers following Christ faithfully. I saw the light of Christ through his people that faithfully followed him. And so did you probably if you're a Christ follower. If you're not a Christ follower, you're online this morning, you're here this morning, let's take care of that. Let's take care of that. It's very easy. Romans 10, 9 through 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If you've been listening today and you're thinking, wow, these people, it may be difficult, but they got a purpose. We got a team, we got an army, we got a shield wall, as the Romans would have looked at it. Going forth, marching against the gates of hell to set the prisoners free. We got something that we're here for because of who Jesus is, because he is the son, the only begotten son of God, because he died on the cross for our sins and because he rose from the grave. And that power, that resurrection power that rose Christ from the grave, he's using that in and through us. You can have an effect on the culture. It's probably not the way that you've been thinking you'll have an effect on the culture. Should you vote? Go vote. These are great people usually on those things. I mean, they're going to do great. They're not. At the end of the day, you do your best with that. But the U.S. government isn't God's arm of justice. It's part of the world. We live in it. We're not of it. If you're called to do that and run for office, go ahead, do that. Be, be salt and light in that scenario. But don't get your whole world around how we need to take back over the culture. There's only one sovereign, and that's God. 
He's already over all of it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you go. Not, all authority is given to me. Now you go. Get an M16 and take over the world for Christianity. Nope. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. For lo, he is with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we have started this series, where we're going to talk about who we are as the church. How does that apply to how we live in the culture, to how we do church, missionally, making disciples, always available for the person who's coming to you, who you're drawing to yourself, to lead them into relationship with you? God, I pray that at Acts Church in the Northwest, in Vancouver, Washington, and that at True Life Church here in Jefferson City, Tennessee, that we would live so boldly, so calmly, so confidently in your love that we might see many people come to know you, that they would be drawn to the light that you have made us to the world, not hiding under a basket, not running away, not becoming like them, not becoming like the world, but showing them the difference, preserving, restraining through the power of your Holy Spirit as you do that, that you would use us. Use us, Lord. If we're gonna be here instead of with you, use us that we might have fruit and be a blessing to many. God, I love you. I thank you for the honor of being able to stay here in the culture, not of it, working for the culture to bring them to you. We love you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.